Get to know a few mentors in your company and talk to them about how did they get to where they are today, right? And what I learned was an MBA, Master's of Business Administration, was a good way to go for people that had my interests, my goals, et cetera. And I, so I came back to Oregon to get my MBA. I did apply to the University of Washington and Oregon and then a couple other um, programs in Europe that I was kind of interested in going to. Um, but I got into uh, two in Europe and the U of O and you know, made a pretty big life decision because if I'd gone to Europe, I would not be speaking to you today. I would be doing something, something totally different, right? That was <laughs> yeah. like a very clear like fork in the road that I didn't take. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to episode 179 of the Camino Voice. Today, I speak with the Capital Access Director of Rain Catalyst. Please welcome Nathan Lilligard. Hi, I'm Brandon Erickson, and you're listening to the Camino Voice podcast, where I interview local business owners, comedians, singers, and more. I dive into their backstory to find out how they got where they are, what are some of the tips for you to do the same, and find out where they are going. Tune in every week as I interview more of the people you see every day. Hey, Ellen, welcome to another episode of the Camino Voice, where we release a new episode every Tuesday, or about that. I uh, hope you guys had a good weekend, uh, and um, yeah, hope things are going well in your lives. Uh, I know there's a lot of craziness going on in the world, but... Uh, Hopefully you can forget about that and just kind of tune into this podcast episode. So uh, anyways, I'm going to jump into this one. So today I'm interviewing Nathan, Nathan Lilligard, who you heard about in the uh, opening. And he's the Capital Access Director for Rain Catalyst. And you might be wondering, who's Rain Catalyst and why should I care? Um, good questions. Um, so I've actually been working with Rain uh, as a contractor since uh, kind of end of January of this year. And uh, what they do, and, and Nathan will give a better uh, idea about what they do because he's better at explaining to this because he's been working with them longer and has known about them from their beginnings. Um, but anyways, uh, they go in and they help build uh, entrepreneurial ecosystems in rural areas to help business development. Uh, that, and typically that is in the form of education things, but sometimes they partner with groups uh, such as they did this time with the EDC of Island County um, and EDASC of Skagit County uh, to also provide fun, uh, grant funding. And they weren't involved on the grant funding side, but it was kind of this partnership between the two groups. So um, anyway, that's how I got connected with Rain, uh, And I think their mission and what they do is just really important. Um, because of, uh, you know, building the small business community is something that I think is just, uh, I mean, I'm a small business owner, so I'm a little biased there, but uh, small businesses run this country. Uh, you know, when you look at the percentages, you look at the breakdowns of what the small businesses do for this uh, country, for everything, um, for the economy, for the new jobs created. Uh, I haven't double checked this stat, but from what I heard, um, small businesses end up creating like 99% of the new jobs um, because with big corporations, yes, they come in and they provide a bunch of jobs, but they also fire a bunch of people just to make the books look better. So when you have that give and take in the end, the big businesses like corporations, like massive corporations end up not actually providing a net increase in jobs. That's what small business does. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I just really am passionate and excited about this 
stuff that uh, that Rain Catalyst does. Um, and so Nathan's going to get all into a lot of that. Um, but what his background is, is actually being the capital access director, helps connect um, entrepreneurs or business owners with the funding source that's best for them. Um, I think a lot of us that get into business uh, get into it and don't know what we're doing. Uh, and a lot of times you just don't know what you don't know. And to find out that there's some easier or better suited funding sources than maybe just going to your bank and getting a loan or doing a Kickstarter campaign or uh, a lot of other forms. Um, so that's what he specializes in. And so we talk about that and how that, um, how he does that and how he connects entrepreneurs with those funding sources. So um, we get into all that and more, plus his background and, and all of that as well. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Nathan Lilligard. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Camino Voice. Today, I'm here with the Capital Access Director of Rain Catalyst. Welcome to the podcast, Nathan Lilligard. Hello, Brandon. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, and I'm excited to join your community of podcast subjects. Yes. So before we get started, tell us a little bit about Nathan. Sure. So um, I am a born and raised Oregonian. Um, both my parents, though, are from Washington State. So my mom is from the east side in Connell, uh, which is a little town north of Tri-Cities. And my dad is from Westport. Um, and they both met at Wazoo. So nice. go Cougs. Yeah. Um, and um, I grew up in a little town outside of Salem, Oregon called Dallas. And Dallas is about like 15 miles west of Salem. Um, you know, nice. Uh, in, in the days when I was growing up, it was a small mill town. It had uh, a lumber mill and some many other manufacturing facilities. And now all of that industry is gone. And it's sort of just a bedroom community for um, Salem and a uh, sort of services place for healthcare and uh, the wine industry. So, okay, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting. You know, like the Northwest has evolved over the last like 30, 40 years to be places are very different than they were. So, right. Um, yeah. We've, we've definitely seen that in Washington. Um, I mean, even going back not that long ago to like Seattle and the suburbs around there, the people that grew up in Seattle or right around there, they're like, it's just completely different. Yeah. Yeah. I have, uh, all my cousins were in Washington state and I have very clear memories of like going to Kirkland when that to visit my uh, cousins for Thanksgiving, when that was like way out there and just sort of suburbia, but now it's its yeah. whole own new city. And so it's, you know, I'm, I'm a small town guy. Um, I'm an Oregon native. Um, I lived in, uh, Bend, Oregon for about five years from 99 oh, nice. to 04. Um, and then have been in Eugene now since 2004 when I came back here to get my um, MBA and did grad school. And then I started a company and then I've been here now for, it's going on 20 years, which is kind of crazy. So, wow. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I want to jump in real quick because uh, I think a lot of uh, my podcast listeners might be wondering like, what, how did I get in touch with this guy from Oregon? Um, but yeah, just a, a quick explainer there. I, I've joined in with the RAIN organization for a contract position. Um, and so I've been working and, and if you want to give just a quick overview of what rain does and kind of their mission as they enter small business communities. Sure. So, um, rain is, um, was originally an acronym that stood for regional accelerator and innovation network and rain grew out of an effort by the state of Oregon to invest in, um, entrepreneurial ecosystems in both Eugene and Corvallis, right? So where University of Oregon is and Eugene and Oregon State and Corvallis. And they said, hey, if we put some money into building up 
these entrepreneurial ecosystems, maybe we can, you know, spur some growth. And so, um, rain in those two areas developed and did its own thing. Um, and what happened was there was very pretty early on and the identification of needs outside of the cities, right? So if you call Corvallis and Eugene cities, which <laughs> comparatively they can be, um, there was a definite identified need in rural communities outside of um, the, outside of the sort of the metro areas for entrepreneurial ecosystem building. And that's where um, Rain's founder and our current leader, Caroline Cummings, saw an opportunity to um, really organize around helping smaller communities build up their entrepreneurial ecosystems. And sometimes that's just as simple as like getting a banker and an accountant and a lawyer and some, and some entrepreneurs in the room together, you know, getting the person who is the, the man or woman or family who like owns a bunch of buildings in town to come out and talk about entrepreneurship, like stuff like that. And so rain exists to, uh, and I'll probably get the marketing um, text wrong, but basically catalyze ecosystems in uh, rural and underserved communities. So um, places like outside of Eugene, Lowell and Oak Ridge and Cottage Grove, which are all about 20 miles, um, you know, outside of the metro area, um, you know, places like I grew up in, in Dallas, that would count as sort of a rural area, you know, in Camino and Island counties, right? Super close to, um, as the crow flies, Seattle and the major metro area there, but, mm -hmm. you know, very different community. So that's where rain comes in to help, um, communities do more to develop their, um, their economy. Right. And there's a few ways to grow an economy, but it's like, I think it's start it, grow it or steal it. Right. So you can bring companies in from outside, like get them to move to your place. You can grow the ones that are already there, which is an important thing, which is one of the things that rain helps with. And then the other thing, other way to grow an economy is to start it. And we help people, identify, you know, what it takes for them to start a business and grow it in their community. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. And, um, rain has been partnering with, uh, the, uh, EDC. So economic development council of Island County, um, to work on the SBIF project, um, which is a grant that's come down from Washington from the federal level, um, and, and do just what you're talking about, try and connect and build out this entrepreneurial ecosystem um, and for me being involved in the project, I've been able to meet a lot of new entrepreneurs, businesses that, um, some I've seen before, uh, some I've never heard of. Uh, like we have a pasta person on Whidbey Island who makes amazing pasta out of her, you know, out of her shop there. And so, um, there's just been a lot of really cool connections that we've been able to make here. So yeah, um, that's awesome. And that's exactly our, our formula, right? Is find somebody who's local, who can help, like who knows the people and can talk to the people and be on the ground. And then my role as capital access director is to come in and help, help the entrepreneurs who have a specific need for capital, right? Whether that's like, Oh, I need a bank loan or, um, vent maybe venture capital financing or even just grants and other opportunities that do exist. Like what are those opportunities and how can we help connect entrepreneurs with them? Right? So the lady who makes pasta, maybe she needs her own facility, right? And so maybe she needs a commercial, some sort of commercial lease or some bank lent lending to buy some equipment or whatever it might be. Right. So that's kind of where I come in. Yeah, no, that's great. And so I want then, some pasta if I come up there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we'll definitely figure out a way to get you there. <laughs> um, so what did you go to school for then when you were after graduating high school? 
So it's kind of an interesting um, dynamic, right? Uh, as as you you know, we can all look back on the you know twenty years of our life from like co- college to twenty or thirty years now for me, you know, high school to where you are. Um, and I went originally to the University of Southern California in uh, Los Angeles for my first two years of college, um, mainly because I was from a small town and I wanted to get out and see the big city, and you can't get much more big city than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did that for two years and I studied urban planning cause I was really fascinated by cities and how they grew and how they developed. Um, after a couple years there, I had a great time, loved my experiences at USC, but kind of realized I wasn't a Southern California guy. And if you <laughs> wanted to stay in, if I wanted to stay in Southern California, that's a great school. But I was like, ah, I don't, this wasn't my jam. So I transferred back up to U of O in 1995, um, and spent my last three years of college there. Um, And there I studied planning, public policy, and management, which is kind of like a mix of public administration and urban planning, which was uh, which has actually come to serve me relatively well in that um, it kind of introduced me to public sector budgeting, a little bit of public sector sort of management and theory, like, you know, what does the public sector do? How do we, how does it exist? How does it sort of seek to serve the community? So I got a little bit of that background um, and that was useful. Um, and then my first job out of college was for a company in Bend, Oregon that did utility billing software. So like water, okay. electric, sewer, gas type utilities. And um, the billing system that takes all the data from you know meters and other things and like sends you a bill. And I think, I don't know if Skagit County is, Skagit County PUD was one of the customers, but like there was all those like little PUDs in Washington, you know, each county has yes. got its own. Yep. Like those were our type of customers. That's awesome. I, uh, I could say that, I guess PUD uh, is slightly different, but our, our water company could use something like that. We're still getting mailed everything and they don't, well, you know. All we did was make the software that made the bill that they mailed you. We eventually got into... Um, into more fancy stuff like internet billing and stuff. But think back to like early 2000s, like (laughs) paying bills on the internet was still a little bit cutting edge, right? It's still like people were scared about that. (laughs) Um, But so the great part about that job was um, I learned a lot about people and processes and organizations. And then I also got to experience what a company – how a company changes when they go through acquisitions and ownership changes. So when we started, I think we were owned by a couple of public utilities and then we were sold to an investment group um, who was like, Hey, we're going to grow this business and make this bigger, right? Classic venture capital. Like, Hey, we give you money, you get bigger, we sell you. Um, And so that was, I was part of the, you know, the, um, one of the employees there when that company was going through that process. And then we got sold to a company in Texas which so the venture capitalists got their money back, um, but then that kind of changed the dynamic. And I'd been there five years, and I was like, you know, I'll go. I think I'll go back to grad school. So came back across the mountains to Eugene, and have been here ever since. Okay, awesome. So after that experience, uh, when you started looking at grad school, what did that? Did, did you decide to kind of change what you had been studying prior to, or did you? Were you trying to dig deeper into what you've already done? I, I think I, I recognize and talking, you know, the, the classic thing you should do, and I tell all students that I teach now is like company and talk to them about how did they get to where they are today, right? And what I learned was an MBA, Master's of Business Administration, was a good way to go for people that had my interests, my goals, et cetera. And I, so I came back to Oregon to get my MBA. I did apply to the University of Washington 
and Oregon, and then a couple other um, programs in Europe that I was kind of interested in going to. Um, but I got into uh, two in Europe and the U of O and you know, made a pretty big life decision because if I'd gone to Europe, I would not be speaking to you today. I would be doing something, something totally different, right? That was like a very clear like fork in the road that I didn't take reasoning there because obviously like i think if most you know early 20s you know to get a chance to study abroad they'd be like yeah i'm gonna go do that so what was kind of your reasoning there i think um well i had studied abroad in norway when i was in college at u of o okay. so i'd been there for six months and i really enjoyed it It was amazing and i kind of wanted to maybe go back and so the reasoning to pursue that was, was that just that like, Oh, I, maybe it'd be cool to pursue my life and do these other things. But the decision really came down to the lifestyle, right? Like if you're going to live in Europe or anywhere abroad, right, you are really committing to that. And you kind of leave your family and all those other things that you have behind. Um, and I wasn't ready to commit to doing that. I had just, um, I had a great life in Bend, I mean, it was, it was almost 20 years ago. So like Bend was just easy and cool and fun. And I had a condo and life was good. I had mountain biked all the time. I mean, it was really good. It's like, why would I leave all this and then go to some place that where I have to kind of totally start over? So, you know, that's part of it, right? You just sort of, I mean, like you're on Camino Island, you've been here there your whole life. It's like, I feel, I feel like I've been around enough to look around and be like, oh, there's other things out there that are cool, but I really like where I am. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. You know, you just have to remind yourself of those things in like February when it's raining and 35 <laughs> degrees, right? Right. And then we, we run into what we're about to run into where we get hit with a heat wave. Yeah, right. It's all good. Seat. It's all good. We'll take it. Right. We take everything. Very cool. So um, you went to the university and pursued your master's degree. Uh, where'd you go after that? So um, I, in my in the course of my MBA, I got involved with the entrepreneurship program at U of O, and one of the things that they had uh, at the time was a what you really call a technology commercialization program, where where um, they had figured out a pathway for technologies developed at the university, right? So researchers that do something cool that they think they could build a business around, they figure out a way to connect those people with teams of law and business graduate students to figure out if there was any sort of business opportunity with this particular technology and innovation. We also worked with a place called Pacific Northwest National Lab, which is out in Richland, Washington. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so, PNNL? Well, so we actually, my senior project, I was a mechanical engineer by trade. Oh, totally. Yeah. We actually did a, our project was, was designing and building a uh, thing for them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's probably like something that like encases nuclear waste or something, right? Yep. Like crazy. All sorts of stuff. Yeah. Like all sorts of crazy. There's just amazing amounts of crazy stuff that they do out there. It's really cool. Um, but that's a long way to get to the idea, to the fact that um, I got connected with a professor who had developed a new way to essentially slice and dice DNA. And we had this idea, I had this idea that you could use that technology to help plant breeders and other researchers do things with DNA. And so after my MBA, having gone through the process of really fleshing out the business plan and thinking what the risks were, et cetera, um, I decided after I graduated, rather than get a job, I just started a company. So I sold my condo in Bend, pocketed some of that money, put it into the company and away I went. So very cool. So that was the company. It was called, uh, Florigenics, right? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. 
And how did that how did that go? Because I think, you know, we've all seen TV shows at this point or heard about, you know, unicorn startups or all these different things. What is it like for you when you stepped into that and started that project and that business? Well, in hindsight, I know that I knew absolutely nothing, right? Like, <laughs> even though I had an MBA, it's like I knew very, very little about the process of starting a business. Um, and I run into that to, you know, I still, I teach at the U of O today and, and most entrepreneurs, you, you just, there's so many things that they can't teach. You can't get taught in college or a graduate program, right? You just have to go out and do it. And so I didn't know much. I didn't really know what I was doing. I just know I needed, there was a couple of, there were some steps I needed to follow to get to where I wanted to be. And mm-hmm. so I just kind of kept plugging away, working with mentors and advisors to make sure I was on the right path. And um, I mean, in general, I'd say it was, it was a great experience, but if I had to do it again, there's a whole bunch of things that I would do differently and make different decisions and prioritize different things. But you know, that's life. Yeah. So then uh, how did you, uh, how did you grow the company when you started that? How did you kind of get off the ground with it? Sure. So um, we had a, a really interesting model in that we were developing a technology that was based on molecular molecular biology methods, right? So it was in the lab, you know, the way you do things with DNA in the lab. And so first we had to make sure that the science worked. And so that involved um, a lot of trial and error with um, my co-founder in his lab, he was a, still a professor at the university, but then we hired away his lab tech to work for the company in a separate lab because you got to do that, right? You got to se- physically separate your work. Um, so we had a lab tech that was doing work for us to try and make it work. Um, we got the methods to work and then we had to ha- find customers that would actually pay us to do this thing. So uh, that was at first just a bunch of friends and colleagues of my co-founder who knew what his method could do. And they were like, yeah, I'd like to try an experiment on my, and we, first we worked in this uh, small organism called zebrafish. It's like a, it's a, it's a classic organism for study of genetics. So we worked for some people in zebrafish and then that started to be successful. And then we got a few people that would work with us in hazelnuts because hazelnuts are a big deal in Oregon. We had a guy, Mm -hmm. we worked with the hazelnut breeder at Oregon state um, and a few others. We had a commercial sort of pilot project with the company that makes um, petunias. Um, and so, or not, they don't make petunias, but they grow and sell petunias. Um, yeah. And so we had this sort of like lots of like trial and error to figure out how it works. And um, that was really the biggest process. And we funded all of that. Um, as I go back to my my role as capital access directors, we, we funded that with a combination of founders capital. So each of my, my co-founder and I each put some money in. And then we got a matching loan from the city of Eugene, Oregon, which was great. They have a business development loan fund, which is a revolving loan fund. So they, they loan money out and they, you know, collect their payments and they keep loaning money out to local businesses. And so we, um, borrowed a a very small amount, a couple tens of thousands of dollars. And like that gave us enough capital to outfit our lab and hire our first tech. And then it took about, probably took about 18 months to get to the place where, um, I could hire somebody to do the science and actually do like sales. So in the meantime, I was living off my savings, but also then got a part-time job as, or got a job as a salesperson for a software company. So we kind of bootstrapped it to start with. 
and sort of self-funded other than that loan. And then we brought in angel investors. So friends and family, you know, my family, my co-founders, family, people, literally a woman I met on the airplane one time, um, <laughs> some early, inv- some small venture capitalists out of Oregon, uh, some people, friends of friends type thing. So we brought in about $275,000 in, um, angel capital and small and venture capital. And then in 2010, we, uh, we had a strategic investor, which was a seed company, literally a corn seed company out of Illinois that invested in the company because they saw our services as a potential, um, competitive advantage for the research that they were doing. Okay. Very cool. And so, um, I'm sure each project was different within it, but like if you take the hazelnuts, for example, what was the goal in the, you know, the micro adjustments you guys were making to this? So um, this is a pretty good, easy one to understand. And in your world in Skagit County, right, you have lots of um, seed uh, growers and vegetable growers and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the, in the um, hazelnut example, uh, basically there's a, a disease called hazelnut blight or filbert blight, I think it was called. And it's this like... Um, I want to say fungus, but I might, I might be wrong, but it's a disease that affects the hazelnut trees and basically causes them to die. And this happens after like, you know, 10 or 15 years of an orchard being productive, they start to get this blight and then all the trees die. And then the farmers are like, they have to replant. So there was a breeder at Oregon state who had figured out he had crossed over, you know, 15 or 20 years. He had finally found a variety of that tree that was resistant to that disease. And one of the important things that our technology could do was genetically identify the presence of the genes that impart disease resistance, right? So okay. if you know, if you, breed, if you breed trees together and you produce a bunch of seedlings, you want to screen out the ones that are, you want to screen for disease resistance, right? And you want to throw yeah. out the ones that are not. Yep. And so he already had some genetic markers, to do this, right? Little DNA snippets, just like we have genetic markers that tell us if we had COVID or not, right? Same, same general idea. Um, and so we helped him identify more markers that he could use in his research. And that was just one application, but that was basically the gist of the business model theory was that we could help people identify this information faster and in species of, um, plants and animals where there wasn't already a lot of really good information like hazelnuts, like nobody yeah. outside of Oregon state and like people in Turkey care about hazelnut trees, but he <laughs> was able to, we were able to help him with that research. And that was pretty cool. Yeah, that's really cool. So then, uh, what kind of led you to move on from that, that business and, and look for new ventures? Um, well, I, I think as any entrepreneur, I call myself an entrepreneur in recovery Right. Um, and any entrepreneur can laugh at that, right? They get it. Um, I had done the company for about four or five years. And in 2011, um, we had a legal dispute with one of our competitors. Um, and not getting into the details of that, but just to say <laughs> that it was very disruptive to the business, right? Yeah. Yep. And I worked through the process of getting us to a place where we are almost ready to settle with that competitor. Um, and in early 2012, one of my old professors at the university, um, we had coffee one day and he said, Hey, I want to retire. This gentleman had been at the university for like 20 years. He's like, they're going to hire this position. 
might you be interested? And I was like, huh, that sounds like a lot less stress than (laughs) running a small company dealing with a lawsuit. Uh, Right. So I, I made the jump. I, I applied, I got the job. Um, and then, um, I transitioned the company to be run by the great team that I had put in place. We had, uh, just a small team of like four or five people, but they were doing really good work and they didn't really need me. Um, and without the lawsuit, they were kind of free to go off on and do their own thing. So I stepped away, the company managed through the lawsuit wrap up. And then I ended up at the university of Oregon and that was over 10 years ago now in 2012. So before you know it, like time has flown by and I've been doing the U of O teaching and entrepreneurship thing for 10 plus years. And now I'm uh, this last year, um, transitioned out of my program role with the entrepreneurship center. And now I just focus on teaching at U of O and that gave me the opportunity to join my friend Caroline at rain and do what I do now. Okay. Awesome. So, so one of the things that I, I would be very curious and I think a lot of, uh, anyone that does business, uh, you know, runs businesses or has been in business would be interested in, um, there's a lot of entrepreneurs. There's time. It feels like there's a lot of times there's kind of two lanes of entrepreneurs. There's the ones that take the MBA way and they they're in college all the way through their MBA. And then they're like, all right, great. Now I'm going to go start a business. And then there's a the type that end up kind of falling into entrepreneurship or it's in their DNA and they just can't not do it. And they, so they never really succeed at their own at working for someone else. They have to start their thing and they, and they go off. But both schools have weaknesses that the others can benefit from. And because you've kind of had feet in both worlds, what are maybe, uh, if you want to give like a handful of things that, that you see on both sides that could benefit the other. So like mm, from a that's a good question. Standpoint and from the bootstrapping. Side. Well, I, I think what, one of the things that's come into play over the last, like, let's see, it came out in 2011. So last like 12 years or so is this idea called the lean startup. And if you've heard of that, right, it's a book, Mm -hmm. it's a methodology, it's sort of a playbook for doing startups. And when I started in 2006, that didn't exist, right? We were still just kind of hunting in the dark. We knew that there was a process to starting a company, but it wasn't like (laughs) well-defined, right? And I look back at what I learned in my MBA days and I'm like, okay, well, I kind of learned the old school method. And then the new school method called the lean startup kind of came into being while I was doing my company. And then when I started at the university, I was on a trip to China with students and I read the book called the lean startup. And I was like, Oh my God, this, this guy is captured all the things that I did wrong. He is, if I would (laughs) have read this six years ago, like I would have saved myself so much trouble. So it was really powerful to see that like someone had taken the the lessons learned from the community of entrepreneurs in the world and put them in a book. It's like, yes. Yeah. Um, and so to address your question, I'd say um, entrepreneurs who are sort of coming from the academic or the process side of like, hey, I want to do a thing and I'm going to do a thing and this is how I do it. That's useful. But at the end of the day, the entrepreneurs who are sort of more personality inclined to be entrepreneurs and that's like who they are and what they're all about and like they just kind of know how to make money, those people have sort of the natural instincts, right? And like you mentioned, you know, your dad is an entrepreneur has done business, right? Uh, My dad and his dad were both entrepreneurs, right? They're professional services providers. My dad's a lawyer. His, his, um, His dad was a... Um, commercial fisherman and then an accountant, 
right? My uncle's a, a small time home builder, right? Like these are just like, you just kind of know like how to do stuff like that. Yeah. And so I think um, there's a little bit of, of it in your DNA and there's also a lot that you can take and apply from the sort of the process and sort of um, the world of sort of big startups, if you will. Yeah. So and you yeah. kind of need a little bit of both. I think, you know, yeah. someone who says these are the steps I need to go through to start a company might lack that sort of instinct to do the right thing sometimes. And yeah. sometimes the, you know, the, the sole entrepreneur who's like building boats or building houses or whatever, they could use some of the guidance of the process. And so it's a little bit yeah. of a balance of both. Yeah. No, I think that's well said. I, I definitely have, have seen that play out. Uh, I, I was able to work with my dad before he did retire. Um, and there were certain times where like you would see that instinct kick in and he would get a deal done or do something that was, it was actually, for me, it was amazing at times because you would see him walk into a room and talk to these people. And by the time they're done, they're like, yeah, let's do this. This is a good idea. And I'm like, I don't know, like he used words, but it was obviously more than words because they said yes. But then simple things came up like, well, how do we, you know, what are we going to do for the bathrooms or whatever it is? And it's like, there would be a breakdown there, like on some simple process things We're like, oh, well, I think if we just do this, it fixes it, right? Yeah. So you need both. Yeah. Yeah. There's actually a really good book um, that I use in some of my classes about entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial DNA. And it, uh, the, the book is called Bozy DNA, B-O-S-I DNA. Um, yeah. And it's a, um, it's sort of like breaks down entrepreneurs into like four different types. Um, and it's really useful, um, for people to understand what type of entrepreneur they are. Cause some people are like specialists, right. And they're just like the guy who fixes your car. Like he doesn't care about making a whole lot of money. He just like really likes to fix cars. Yeah. Right. And then there's the um, opportunist. That's so, that is like the person who saw the pandemic happening and went to Costco and bought all the toilet paper, yeah. right? Yeah. And then there's the builder who is like the person who's like, I want to build a company and build an organization and stuff like that. So there's all different types of entrepreneurs. I yeah. think that's important to, for people to understand sort of what what type are you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you mentioned. Uh, you got, you decided to get reconnected with Caroline and you said you knew her prior to joining up with her. Um, how did, uh, how did all that kind of come about and what kind of helped you move in that direction? Sure. So, um, Caroline and I were both entrepreneurs in Eugene in the like 2006, 2000 to 2010, 11 timeframe. And we were both okay. at, uh, an event called the Bend Venture Conference, which is in Bend, Oregon. It's a investment conference. And we were both, uh, both of us had companies that we were pitching our idea to this investment conference. And I was in the uh, sort of like top tier and her, she and her company were in like the uh, lower tier of like um, quick pitches and I got like 10 minutes or something. And we were watching the practice and she's pitching. She's like, hi, my name's Caroline. I'm from Eugene. And I was like, I'm, you're from Eugene. I'm from Eugene. Like, like we should talk, right? Like you're an entrepreneur. I'm an entrepreneur. And we both have problems that like we want to talk to other people about that we, they just don't understand. Right. So, yeah. um, we met up through that, uh, first interaction and then we co-founded a group in Eugene we called smart ups. And it was a, basically an entrepreneurial support group that came together to just like let entrepreneurs talk to each other. Right. So yeah. we get together and we'd have beer. We called them pub talks. We'd have like an event once a month or every couple of months. 
And it was just really a place for the entrepreneurs in the community to come together to talk about what they were doing. Yeah, that's really cool. So, so then when you when she started Rain and was doing that, were you like, hey, that looks familiar? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, she helped um, migrate sort of that whole process that we did in Eugene. It migrated into a program of the Eugene Chamber of Commerce, and they ran it for a few years. Um, and she was the kind of program lead for it for a while. Um, and then it evolved into a bunch of different things. Um, but, um, yeah, it was, you know, we, we, she has had, and I have been passionate about as well, this whole idea of like community building, cause there's nothing, mm-hmm. there's nothing lonelier than being an entrepreneur because you know, like all the details of your business, you know, what's going wrong, you know, when you're going to run out of money, you know, when, you know, you know, all the bad things and it's hard. And so I think one of the things that entrepreneurs need, no matter what they're doing, whether it's like a soul, a solo plumber or some guy running a company that's got 500 employees, like everybody just kind of needs to talk about what they're doing. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and for that reason, I've been part of a, a, a coaching group for a couple of years now. And, um, and it's been huge in my business, um, you know, to, to meet with, you know, we meet every other week and, to talk through, like, I, you know, a lot of times it's personnel problems, right? It's like, do I fire this person? Or do I give them another chance? And it's talking that through. Well, what are the symptoms? What are the things? Have you been clear with them? Um, or it's a business decision. Hey, I'm looking at doing this. And when you're talking with other entrepreneurs, they get to answer from, well, if I was in your position, I would do this. Mm-hmm. And um, it could just be helpful because people, all of us think differently. And so it, it's just helpful to get that kind of, you know, round table discussion going and um yeah a lot good comes out of it yeah absolutely and that is you know that is 100 percent um you know necessary for all business owners whether you consider yourself an entrepreneur or not like it's just good to have people you can talk to about your thing right yeah. and i've got one of my best buddies from college he and i talk probably once or twice a week he owns a business out in montana Um, and we just, you know, we just talk business stuff. Like, you know, sometimes we'll just talk about the weather and our kids, but sometimes they'll be like, dude, I got this thing. Like, what do you think? Right. And that's really helpful to have somebody you can call to be like, what should I do here? Like, you know, and yeah, personnel issues or strategic issues or all sorts of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. There's not, there's no, there's no really good answer for most things. It's, there's like no perfect answer. So, right. Yeah. And every situation is different. Totally. So. Awesome. So then, uh, when you were looking to reconnect with rain, then how did you get involved in the capital access side of it? Well, I had seen the, um, the program that had started in, I think earlier 2022, maybe even 2021. Um, and, the the previous capital access director had moved on for, um, I'm not sure the reasons, but he had, he had moved on to something else, uh, that fit his skill set. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was just at a place in kind of mid summer of, um, last year where I was like, huh, maybe I should do something else. I'd actually, um, not gotten the job as the director of entrepreneurship of the entrepreneurship center at U of O. So I was like, well, if I'm not going to do that, then what do I want to do? Yeah. Um, and I, I had been watching Caroline right on social media, LinkedIn and like, Hey, you're, are you still hiring for this thing? And she's got back to me and said, yes. And then I interviewed and here I am. So it's really just kind of a, you know, keeping tabs, like who, who, you know, that's doing interesting things and having seen that this role was open. I was like, that sounds kind of fun. So um, yeah, here I am. Awesome. So now uh, talk a little bit about what does that entail then? What does your role really mean? 
So um, it's got a couple. It, the funding for it comes from a couple of different sources, and that kind of dictates like what I need to focus on, right? So our first capital access program grant was from um, the Bus- Business Oregon, which is a state agency here in Oregon, and a foundation called the Collins Foundation, and, and a few other sources that focused on this idea of. Um, crowdfunding for equity and or debt financing, right? So mm-hmm. I have a business, I need to grow it. Instead of getting you know, an angel investor, maybe I can go out to the crowd and have a campaign like Kickstarter and rally you know, $100,000, $200,000 that way. Yeah. Um, and so the initial idea was that um, this is, that's the thing that this director role would do is go find companies and help coach them up to get them ready to do that process. Um, and I've And as I joined in August of last year, we had a company in Eugene that was doing a crowdfunding campaign called Arable Brewing, and they raised about 68 grand on uh, the Republic crowdfunding platform, and that was successful. Mm -hmm. And then what I've I've run into um, over the preceding six months or so is that the sort of understanding that um, crowdfunding for any business is, is a lot more complicated than it seems. Mm-hmm. Right, because you've got to both. You know, you've got to have a business that is interesting enough to a large group of people, right? So everybody yep. kind of needs to understand it. Um, you've got to have um, through. You know, it's no fault of Republics, but you've got to meet their standards, right? So they list Republic as a platform. Republic.com is a platform where you can list your business for investment, but they do stringent reviews of your financials and your legal documents and all that stuff. Okay. And so it's not really easy Yeah. because you got to do all that stuff. And then you've got to have some, um, and then you've got to have um, sort of the time and the wherewithal as an entrepreneur to actually engage in this. Cause one thing they don't tell you in any entrepreneurial uh, teaching program is that raising money is a full-time job, right? Yeah. Even if you're just trying to get bank loans, yeah. right? Yep. It's like a whole job by itself. So it's been hard to find companies that fit that mold. Um, but it's been an interesting way to engage with companies that are in the process of raising money. And so then um, I help them along the way, whatever that might be, whether that's connections to investors or banks or grants or whatever I can do. So that's kind of what I do there. Yeah. And and what would you say is the the big difference in why someone would choose to go with Republic versus someone that wants to do Kickstarter or or one of the other kind of more well known ones. Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. So Kickstarter is a um, a product based rewards crowdfunding, right? Okay. So I you've got an idea for a cool new like jacket, you put the design out there. You say, hey, I just need to you know I need some money to go buy it, have these made, right? I give you two hundred bucks, I get a jacket back like four or five months later. Like I've yeah. done that, and it's kind of cool, right? Yeah, great way to like launch a product. Republic and crowd equity based crowdfunding is similar, but instead of selling a product, what you're giving people is equity in your company. And one of the challenges with that is that, um, well, one of the reasons that's helpful is that oftentimes you might have a company that resonates with a lot of people. Same, mm-hmm. let's go back to that same like jacket idea. Like, oh, like everybody who runs or cycles or kayaks or whatever is like, yeah, I need that jacket. Yeah. Right? There might be people that are willing to invest five hundred or a thousand dollars, and you might be able to find a couple thousand of those people. Well, it's really difficult if you're raising money through sort of traditional angel investment circles or angel investment processes. It's really difficult to bring on 
a couple hundred individual investors because yeah. that's like reporting and forms and a bunch of stuff you got to do. It's like, oh, that's just a pain. Yeah. Republic makes it possible for people to access capital um, from a lot more people who want to invest less than a typical angel. A typical angel investor might invest $10,000 or $25,000. But if I want to put in 250 bucks into Brandon's company, because I think Camino Island, I don't think Camino Island Coffee is your company, right? But Right. That's my brother-in-law's company. That's your brother-in-law. So Camino Island Coffee is going to go big. They're going to take down Starbucks, right? Like <laughs> I could put $250 in through Republic and then your brother-in-law's coffee company um, can have me as a shareholder, but you Republic handles all of the reporting administration stuff, right? So okay. you don't have a couple hundred individuals on your uh, list of shareholders that then makes it a real pain to do reporting and all that stuff. Right. Okay. Very so, cool. So it's a really valuable service. It's just, it's hard to find, like thread the needle for everything to come together to, for a business to really work with that. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, it, it involves so many different pieces too. It's the, the marketing, the advertising, the like, uh, and then the financial side, so like the very technical side of it and the legal side. So yeah, you're, hit, you're yeah. hitting everything. <laughs> yeah, it all comes together. And, um, you know, and, and the big part is the campaign, right? Like running a crowdfunding campaign is a lot of work. It's all about social media and awareness and getting attention. And it's not easy. And it's, you know, it's not something that I'm good at. I'm not a attention seeking social media person, but yeah, no, I totally get that. And yeah, I think that is, um, you know, you do see these Kickstarters or, or other things like that crowdfunding things and they blow up and you're like, Oh, well, I mean, they put a video together and they threw some stuff on a thing. Like, but that's not what really happened. What happened is everything else that got them to the point where you're actually seeing them on whatever it is. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I, I've, uh, have experience with several friends and former students who have done Kickstarter campaigns and it's a really effective way to launch a product or, a something new, um, but it's certainly not easy and it's it and it also carries a lot of risk like what if you can't make the thing that you said yeah. you could make yeah that's always you know i've actually it's funny i've got a i think it's on indiegogo so maybe not kickstarter but it's same idea and i i think we bought it in 2018 i still haven't seen it <laughs> yeah and that's just how it works i mean i bought a, a a stove a camp stove from an established company in spokane called gsi and yeah. um, they were launching this new, um, slim, uh, really nice kind of modern looking camp stove. And I saw it in a magazine or something. So I went on and I ordered the Kickstarter and, and this was like maybe June of 2020, right? So I'm like, oh, I'm going to do more camping because of the pandemic. So I'll need a new stove. Well, it was great. And their timing was excellent in terms of the market demand. But then um, we started getting updates from the company. They're like, well, we can't really... Um, get it to you by the time we promised because all the factories in China have shut down and they like included a, in the update they sent, they like included a picture of like a factory that had the lights off and they're like, this is our factory. Sorry. Yeah. Right. And then this whole like drama about getting it actually made during the pandemic. And they fi I finally got it Labor Day of 2021. Okay. But still, like that's crazy, right? It took me a, it took them a year plus to like make a stove, and they had yeah. a, and this was a company that knew what they were doing, right? So, um, it's it's a risky proposition. I've seen lots of companies do great, and then there's you know other companies they like launch one product and they don't know what their next thing is, and so they yeah. have trouble figuring out what's the next thing. Yeah. Awesome. So you you work a lot on the you work with the Republic, you know, getting people stood up on that. 
what other aspects do you deal with on the capital access side? Sure. So um, right now, we've, we've just recently started a grant uh, from the U.S. Economic Development Administration where we are partnered with an organization uh, called the Portland Seed Fund. And it's a small um, early stage venture capital fund out of Portland, Oregon, Portland Seed Fund. Um, and our program with them is to help identify uh, founders of color and female founders who are working on scalable tech companies across the Pacific Northwest. Okay. And so it's super, it's pretty specific, right? And my job there is to go to various places and try to find people who fit that mold of like, you know, BIPOC founders or female founders, you know, in places where they might not, they either might not know about venture capital or they just assume like, Hey, that's just not for me. Cause I live in, you know, Whidbey Island, right. right. Or exactly. whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's important to like find those people and say, no, actually. And what I do then is help prepare them to meet with the guy, the folks at Portland seed fund and then Portland seed fund will make that investment decision. But at least we got them access to that pathway that they wouldn't have otherwise had. So that's yeah. what our grant is for the next couple of years. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Um, In fact, I even had a, um, uh, met, connected with uh, a software company up in your neck of the woods, I think in Skagit County. I don't know exactly. Um, but, you know, someone who's, who's in that, in your region, who is potentially a, a really cool opportunity. So that's yeah. you know, exactly the reason we're doing this. Yeah. Well, and I, I do think that's, that's really neat. And the, the piece there is that, again, I think people just kind of imagine that like, if you're not in Austin or, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, there's not the money there. There's not the, you're not going to have that explosive growth and stuff, but, um, you know, I, hey, we no, are, I mean, there's lots of, lots of amazing companies that have come out of like what you call like non-traditional hubs. Right. And, and there's a lot, there are a lot of like undiscovered, um, gems in places that are outside of the big tech hub. So, um, you know that is, there's a whole movement uh, by a gentleman called named Steve Case, who was one of the co-founders of AOL. Yeah, and he has a um, sort of a movement called the Rise of the Rest. And his whole idea is that basically, if you if you think about everything outside of the major tech hubs, there's a huge opportunity to do cool for companies doing cool stuff. It's like they just need attention and someone yeah. to like go there and say, "Hey, what are you doing?" And he's he's built a whole movement around the rise of the rest, and po there's podcasts and conferences and all that stuff. So it's awesome. kind of like that, but just more Pacific Northwest focused. Yeah, very cool. All right, and lastly, what are some of your? Uh, you talked about the Portland Seed Fund. Do you have any other big projects you're working on, or even small ones that are, are kind of fun you want to throw in to mention? Um, you know, I mean, that's kind of my that's my focus right now is helping to coach entrepreneurs um, and really. Working with people like you, who are who are our venture catalysts in the different communities, right? And helping um, when you define when you find an entrepreneur who's doing something cool, and they're like, "I think I want to grow, but I'm not really sure if I need money. Should I get a bank loan? Should I get investors?" Like, I like being that person who helps them figure out what what's the best pathway for them. So that's kind of my um, if I if I have a sweet spot of things that I do, I really enjoy that part of the job, like helping entrepreneurs figure it out. Um, I've been teaching at the U of O for uh, this is my 11th year now, so I've I've done a lot of working with like students who have general ideas, yeah, which is great, and I love their enthusiasm and, and spirit. But like, I really like working with people who are actually making money, and then yeah. it's like, oh, okay, well, I can help. Let's see if we can help you make more money. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, very cool. Well, I like to end every podcast with some rapid fire questions. Sure. So the first one is what purchase of a hundred dollars or less have you enjoyed the most in the last three months? Last three months. Um, I'm a cyclist and I would say probably a new set. Oh no, a new set of gloves for riding, right? Because nice. in the wintertime, a good set of like bicycle of gloves makes a rainy bicycle ride better or worse. And uh-huh. I got a new set of gloves. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely been there riding in the rain and you're like, you can't feel your fingers and you're like, I think I can stop, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, I'm not sure if I'm actually squeezing the brakes or not. Yeah, that's not a good place to be. So buy yourself some good gloves. Awesome. Uh, who is the most influential person outside of your family in your life? Mm, that is tough. Um, I would say probably some of my colleagues at the university, people that I've worked with, um, but also um, my my good buddies, uh, my good buddy from college that I talk with, you know, a couple times a week, like, you know, he and I talk about life and life in general and business and family and all that stuff. I think he's probably most, most inf- influential. Awesome. All right. This is a fill in the blank question. Yeah. I know this is weird, but I've always wanted to blank. I couldn't, I looked at this brand and I couldn't come up with anything that I was like, Oh, that's weird. But I don't know. I don't, I don't feel like I've got a lot of stuff that I've always wanted to do that I haven't done. Never wanted to cycle from like, you know, the top I mean, of North America down well, to the bottom so of that, So I do want to someday ride my bike down the coast of Norway. So having been there okay. and there's a, there's a British guy who, um, who moved to Norway. I don't know why, but he moved to Norway and he started making YouTube videos about his bike rides around Norway. I'm like, that's pretty cool. So he's got this whole route that he's mapped out from like, not the full top of Norway because that's way up there, but like the middle down to the bottom. And so I've, of course, mapped my own route and I'm like ready to go. It's going to be yeah. like a seven or eight day trip. Um, nice. But, you know, I'm, I got to like get there. I got to get in shape. I got to get permission from family. Got to right. schedule all that. You know how it is. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Uh, who's an interesting or fascinating person that I should interview next? Mm. Um. I, if you haven't had Caroline on the podcast, that could be interesting. I don't know if yeah. you have. No, I haven't. I would, I would say Caroline Cummings, our director, would be a good person to bring on the podcast because she has, I mean, she's, she's done some really interesting things with the, with the organization and she's doing some interesting things. And, um, a little bit of like a fill in the blank, like this is weird, but I did. I've been to, um, Pakistan, which is okay. not a n- normal place that you would go. Uh, just, right on vacation. Right. Um, but I got involved with a, uh, university professor at here in Eugene who, um, had a grant program to help a university in the mountains of Pakistan, um, built out their entrepreneurship center. So I was the entrepreneurship guy at U of O. She's like, Hey, you want to do this? And I said, sure. So through that program and that engagement, I then, um, they did a second program grant a few years later and Caroline got involved with that. And then she went to Pakistan in 2019 or 18. I'm not sure which one. Um, and then I went again in 2019 and now rain has been to Pakistan in early 2023 to help establish and grow women's entrepreneurship. That's Um, awesome. So she'd be interesting to talk to about that because that's a really like, um, down, that's a really like genuine interest of hers is helping encourage f- women entrepreneurs because even though we're in the 2020s, we're still a long way from sort of parity between men and women in business. And it, it's even more, um, there's even more disparities in places like Pakistan where women's role in society isn't even at the same level that it is in the United States. So, yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and, and that's why some of the, you know, these other programs you guys are working on are so important. Yeah. Um, specifically yeah. reaching out to certain uh, groups of people and stuff. Yeah. Uh, make yeah. sure they're seen. Awesome. All right. And lastly, what piece of advice would you give your 20 year old self? I would say, don't worry about, don't worry about the, where you're going to get to. Don't worry about having a, like a, uh, a long-term plan. Just <laughs> do what you feel is, uh, best for you at that moment. Right. Like, d- you know, take advantage of the opportunities that come, come up to you. And I always tell, I, this is a piece of advice I give to students and I try to take it myself is like, when faced with two choices and one of them will not reoccur in the future, choose the one that's le- that's not less likely to happen to you again, right? Yeah. Whatever that is. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's, that's great. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, you're welcome, Brandon. It's great. And I, I look forward to um, getting up your way and seeing some of Skagit and Island counties and, um, you know, having some coffee and checking it out. Absolutely. All right. And Islanders, I will talk to you on the next one. Well, a big thank you to Nathan Lilligard for joining us on the podcast today. And thank you for listening. If you haven't already, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It really does help us get found by other Islanders like yourself. And for more information on this episode, you can go to CaminoCommons.com slash podcast or check the show notes in the app that you're using. All right. With that, I will talk to you guys on the next one.